0: This is the Breaking Down Incident Response Podcast. We are your hosts, Brian Betcher,
1: And I am Michael Goff.
0: Welcome to episode two. Yes, number two. Well, we started with zero, but anyway. Um, Today we're gonna be talking about, well, I'll get to that. Here's a little summary of uh, what we got today. We have a guest, that's our first thing. We're still lining up sponsors for the podcast. Evidently, it takes a while to get those sponsors going because they got to go through all their financial mumbo jumbo. We've got some newsworthy items, but it's all about the Atlanta breach and uh, Sam 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 ransomware.
1: Is it a breach? Is ransomware a breach? I want to argue not. Losing data is a breach. Ransomware is just annoying.
0: According to some in the government. So, uh, we've got our malware of the month. We're going to focus on Drydex. We got some site where, site worthy items, malware archaeology, cisecurity.org, and, uh, some others like security for real people. Um, if you recognize that site, which a lot of you probably do, you'll know who our guest is. And we've got some tool worthy items, tools of the trade to share with you guys and, uh, Topic of the day is Windows Logging Who, What, Where, When, and Why. Let's uh, take a little time for our sponsors. Well, our
1: sponsor of this podcast is LogMD, the log and malicious discovery tool. Give it a try. Discover it. It'll help you with the topic we're talking to tonight, but also does much more for discovering malware and malicious activity on Windows hosts. So give it a try. Discover LogMD at log-md.com. And of course, we are looking for sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the show. As Brian mentioned, uh, we are also competing with RSA. So all the sponsors and vendors disappear during the RSA period where all their money goes. So I know that's a a big reason I had that issue with running B-sides in the spring as well.
0: Hey, that's a good place to find sponsors as well, I guess, if you go to all the booths and ask them.
1: That's a lot of booths. RSA is a big con. But if you're interested. And if you know somebody, send an email to info at imfsecurity.com, and we will gladly talk to you about sponsoring a single podcast or the entire year. Now
0: to our guest.
1: We have a Name guest. Is David
0: Longnecker. He's an InfoSec practitioner. Um, David, I, I, you had a quote yesterday, I think, on Twitter. All I have is a couple decades experience doing security and IR at a Fortune 50 company. And I think you were talking about this attack on Boeing. Like There's a lot of uh, stuff going on on Twitter, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, So uh, we had uh, reports late
2: yesterday of a WannaCry incident happening at Boeing and a leaked memo from somebody within the company with uh, a rather panicked uh, tone to it uh, that uh, some in the media took to mean that it was a very widespread breach. And uh, shortly afterward, there were some calling for the head of the CISO or the CISO. Um, My thought on that was way too early to be making calls like that because all we had was a, a leaked memo and nothing is ever as simple as a leaked memo makes it out to be. We don't know what's going on in the company. We don't know what, or at that time, we didn't know what the, the scope of the incident was. We didn't know if it was a couple of systems or if it was system-wide. We didn't know if it affected only unpatched systems or systems in a particular area. Uh, and for that matter, we didn't know if WannaCry was a definitive uh, diagnosis or if it was the, the name de jour for a ransomware attack.
0: True. Yes. Nothing is ever as simple as it seems to be. At least in in the public's eye, it's it's always a lot more complicated, especially in a large organization. Uh, David has a Twitter account. If you want to follow him, go to at D-N-L-O-N-G-E-N. His blog is securityforrealpeople.com. Uh, I visit that as often as I can remember. And uh, his GitHub account is uh, D-N-L-O-N-G-E-N.
1: And he, uh, he did update it with a new tool, I noticed. Could be a little oh. bit could be a little bit uh, biased there, but
0: yeah, always. Uh, <laughs> um, now on to our next topic. M40. Okay, so the as we've seen, the city of Atlanta, if you don't know, was hit with ransomware and services were taking off taken offline. Apparently, they were hit with SamSam Sam ransomware. Now, the first article we have is from SecureWorks. And uh, they they went into a lot of detail three years ago on SamSam Sam ransomware. So the MO, according to them, is the threat actor's um, decision to deploy ransomware following initial network compromise suggests that they focus on individual compromises rather than indiscriminately spreading ransomware via large scale large scale phishing or web exploit attacks. And the group name is called Gold Lowell. And I, they use uh, a lot of tools in their tool chest. Um, some of which is like Mimi Cats. They use a tool called Hyena, which is a legitimate network administration tool.
1: I used to use this back in the uh, to around two thousand to query my uh, NT and Novell stuff. Hyena I mean, was a phenomenal tool. So kudos to the hackers still using that <laughs> and keeping it alive. Uh, they a- use
0: uh WMI and RDP wrap which is a freely available application that can enable user accounts to be logged in locally and remotely at the same time so so yeah they're they're finding vulnerabilities on uh, on the endpoints the outside and then breaking in and using other tools to spread around in the environment and sort of take over the IT infrastructure and then their tool of choice is something that's custom to them they wrote it called samsam Sam. And that's what they do. They that's a great example, though, of how vulnerability doesn't always mean
2: a software flaw. Vulnerability can be a sysadmin tool in the hands of the wrong person.
1: Correct. Yeah. Like Hyena. Used to use it as an admin, right? And also to note our topic tonight, will, uh, if you were to monitor for things like Mimikatz or Hyena or or WMI, or RDP, PowerShell. Um, PSExec. Yeah, yeah PSExec, especially PSExec. Uh, the topic tonight is a great example of what you can do to detect these use of these tools. And clearly, I'm guessing when they executed this tool, any of these tools, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine listed in this list in the SkitWorks report, that uh, you would probably see at least two or three of these used at once. And in normal conditions, that would not be the case in your environment. So it should set off a lot of alarms. It definitely would in... in our area obviously because we monitor these kinds of tools we have a list of these kinds of admin tools that we add and if they go off so uh, good logging will definitely help you here
0: yeah the the, the whole idea is privesc privilege escalation they gain local administrative access using meme and cats uh, and extract you know basically extract credentials from memory that's what that does and uh and they get legitimate user accounts, hopefully admin accounts. So they eventually get domain admin and start spreading from there. They pretty much do anything. They download Mimikatz using PowerShell and they have an online power or they call Mimikatz from an online powersploit repository. So uh, the next article on this uh, is from CNN. Six days after ransomware cyber attack, Atlanta officials are filling out forms by hand so, in the article, the uh, mayor says, I am looking forward to us really being a national model of how cities can shore themselves up and be stronger because of it. That's that's regarding their um, digital infrastructure. Right. right. And according to SecureWorks, in the article, it says um, the incident response team was involved in working with law enforcement, including FBI, Homeland Security, and Secret Service, as well as independent forensics experts. and. Educational partners like Georgia Tech, and also SecureWorks apparently is involved in this. They called them. I don't. I, I, I'm not sure if SecureWorks is one of their vendors, um, but they are based in Atlanta, which is probably why they're involved.
1: Yeah, they're definitely right there in Atlanta. They'd be a good choice. They have a big presence, and obviously a vested interest to help out their their local city.
0: So the the attacks gone on for at least a week. Um, we have no indication that they have paid the ransom yet. So th- I think they're doing everything they can not to pay the ransom. In fact, the uh, the attackers took down the site that they gave them to uh, basically pay the ransom, I guess because the city made it public. The next article around the same thing is from NPR Atlanta working around the clock to fight off ransomware attack. And another one is, uh, time is running out for Atlanta in ransomware attack. Basically, this one in the article, it says they had a security audit. Now we don't know when this was, but it was months before the attack. Uh, the city was warned that this could happen and it found a, the audit found a significant level of preventable risk to the city and it concluded that Atlanta had no formal process to manage risks to its information systems. Right. So, so the audit basically found a lot of flaws, according to the article, and warned them, them that this could happen. And we don't know if they did anything about it or if they had a SWAT team to basically fill in these holes and they were in the process of doing it and, and they were hit by this attack beforehand. We don't know. The mayor told reporters that cybersecurity is now a top priority for the city. I guess it wasn't before.
1: Probably not. Again, uh, I I earlier in the week had posted that InfoSec is a lot like the airline and auto industry, and that it takes people dying, in this case the cyber equivalent of dying, to take this stuff seriously and to spend the resources required. And I guess in Boeing's case, it really is cybersecurity is a lot like the airline industry. And it takes these big events to cause a shakeup, either Either because uh, people get fired, and/or the news, and/or the press, reputation, stock pricing—you know, whatever the combination of things are—you know, this this kind of event uh, shouldn't be the thing that changes. And I don't think they quite understand the amount of work they're talking about. Uh, CSO Online Magazine, another article we have in the in the show notes here, talk about the group behind SamSam Sam is believed to have made eight hundred fifty thousand dollars since December twenty seventeen. I mean, that's pretty good—almost a, almost a million a million bucks since uh, December. That's what five months total, probably. In Atlanta's case, uh, the city has RDP exposed to the public, as well as VPN gateways, FTP servers, and IS installation. Most of them have SMB v1 enabled, making the task of spreading the ransomware easier. So these these changes uh, that need to occur to stop these mass infections. Uh, if we remember when Samsung hit Europe, right, they spread like crazy over there because of the fact that SMBV one is so widely used and not blocked in the U.S. Fortunately, the ISPs, the Time Warner's or who is it now? Uh, who's the Time Warner here now? Um, oh, re- uh, not Reliant. Uh, it was really bought by yeah. Spectrum wasn't it? Spectrum. So Spectrum hey. and and I'm and uh, All these all these providers they block this stuff, so they they couldn't propagate across like they could in Europe, and that's that's why Europe got hit so much harder than us. Uh, but this is an example of a change that needs to occur within the environment. This isn't a patch. This is an architectural change to wipe out the lateral movement and the mass spreading of these kinds of attacks, and and that's the kind of changes cities, uh, or counties and state, local, federal governments are going to have a very hard time with because they they don't segment. Networks are very flat. They're they're easy. You know, I don't think they understand the amount of work that's going to be required to be. Uh, the, what the mayor say, uh, you know, example of city security. Uh, I think that's an understatement of her not understanding the, the sheer volume of work that uh, lays before them. To your
2: point on, to your point on SMBV one, that's a drum that's a net pile over at Microsoft has been beating for several years now. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he is either the, the product manager or had a strong hand in its creation, and is now. Working to uh, eliminate SMB1 from the environment, but it, it's pervasive. Uh, a lot of, uh, especially older printers and uh, older systems, SMB1, v one is what they use.
1: The uh, you know the challenge here is when you roll out Windows 10, let's say Windows 10. All right. So the the concept here, right? If you're rolling out a new Windows 10 desktop, laptop. 2016 server, you know, it's an option to enable the SMBV1. You should turn this off. The fact that Microsoft is not turning it off is kind of a bummer. Uh, but you should deploy these things uh, new. I mean, hey, City Atlanta, if you're listening, turn this stuff off on Windows 10. Deploy Windows 10. Turn this off. Deploy PowerShell 5 and, and good logging there. Uh, but these are the kinds of changes that really are going to need to occur. We're not talking about patching. We're talking about significant architectural changes don't let, because this is just one example, right, ransomware. You could get a, in case of Sony's case, right, where it's literally not ransomware, even though uh, they tried to get a movie pulled, you know, they wiped all those computers. It can be a, a numerous things, it's, and it's just a matter of how they got in, whether a user clicked on something, whether there's a phone on the Internet, <laughs> password stealing and get into RDP. I know in doing the con circuit like I do, uh, we've had a lot of conversations about this, and a lot of the vendors have told me that RDP, when a, when a company gets seriously compromised, meaning RDPs open to the internet, they log in with some stolen creds through a campaign they bought or and or led, they get in the environment, they find the domain controllers, mail servers, they deploy their stuff, and whammo. In one case, uh, one of the vendors told me that uh, they had made a mistake in the domain controller login script, so they were actually pushing this out via the login script, that uh, there was a typo, and if they hadn't made a typo, More than three quarters of the systems in this company would have been taken offline and we were talking over 100,000 systems. And so maybe it was a, they did it on purpose and they would come back and turn it back on if they didn't pay the initial ransom, who knows. But this is an example where, you know, one one open or weak area, they get in, they touch everything and then, you know, whammo, everybody gets nailed. Uh, It doesn't have to be ransomware. It can be, it can just be malware. It can be, you know, deletion of stuff. It can be destructive. It can be... Password stealing, I mean, give me anything. Matter of fact, we, we we know that some of these cred stealer attacks, that we, we get them all the time, will also drop, in some cases, when these guys successfully get in, will drop rootkits. Uh, and there was a talk at, what, besides, uh, you listened to Brian on this subject? Besides Austin. Yes. Yeah. Well,
0: I, I don't know if it was a rootkit. No, it was a Trojan. Trojan. Um, they get in with phishing email, uh, drop a Trojan. In fact, they uh, they that's all they could use. That was their one... Uh, there was their one bag yeah, of, was the one toilet, getting in a Windows system, dropping this Trojan, and then basically demanding ransom.
1: Yeah. Right? So, I mean, that's that's an example, right? So it can be anything. I think I think it's just uh, the, the problem is there to say, look, it's not just a ransomware problem. This can be anything, but the types of changes you must make as a city, in this case Atlanta, we're talking about, but any company is good hygiene. Uh, we also copied it in our article from a friend of ours, M- Mauer Jake. One of the SANS instructors as well. It was awesome being in the airline, we're sitting there waiting at the airline club for a couple hours. And we actually got some work with MD done in the lounge there while we were doing it, too. <laughs> uh, but the fact that, you know, he calls he calls this cybersecurity hygiene, right? Leaving RDP open to the Internet is bad. We've been telling this people for years, and it's consistent that people will scan the Internet and find RDP open. Uh, this is well known to be used in healthcare and various other companies that they've gotten in and dropped ransomware. Uh, this, is, this is seriously bad because it's just username and password. credit stealing is is on the rise. I mean, holy moly, it's our number one threat by far. And if you've got anything that's username and password only on the Internet, it is incredibly, incredibly bad. And, of course, SMB, right? Windows file sharing, system message block stuff. If you have that open to Internet, well, you're going to end up like the, the SamSam in, in Europe. Also, you're going to potentially have the ability to crawl laterally if you leave this stuff open because they will use it. And so these kinds of hygiene things that Mauer Jake points out are, we've been preaching for years and, and we really need to, uh, take this architectural change and turn, turn this stuff off, block this stuff, port 135, 138, 139, 445, you know, open it only where you need it. Oh, we might break something. Yeah. So break something. You should break something versus this ransomware attack or other attack breaking something. There, there's a lot of improvements one can make.
2: Did you catch the article a couple of weeks ago uh showing how RDP can be used uh in, in an impersonation attack that if you can gain system privs on a box that has an RDP session you can take over that session and become the the person in that session uh there's no escalation involved it, it legitimately looks like you are that person
0: now
1: Oh, yeah. there's It's it's worse, right? There's an option in RDP that if you don't turn it off, will map your system that you are RDPing from to the target system. That target system then has access to your share. Uh, don't ask me how oh, yeah. I unfortunately painfully learned that one when I was in gaming. RDP, <laughs> RDP can be a very bad thing. And, and these are configuration changes, right? These are things we sometimes refer to as hardening. But it's this sort of stuff that companies really need to start torquing down on. Because uh, it is obvious when we see these attacks and, and the commodity malware that we see that they are actively taking advantage of these default, no thought behind configurations of, of Windows boxes that give them a myriad of ways to uh, compromise a user, right? Because a, a non-admin, locked down, hardened, fully patched will get wiped out with ransomware.
0: Speaking of twerking, and down.
1: trying to
2: hide doesn't make a whole lot of trying to hide doesn't make a whole lot of sense because. Uh, between Shodan and Masscan and all of the various internet-wide scanners these days, if you've if you got RDP open to the internet, you're going to be discovered. So oh, yeah. There's no
1: obscurity any longer. No, 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 no. You've already been discovered. You're on a list. It's just a matter of them getting a cred that works. Yes. And how many people monitor their RDP with good logs that monitor for the country of origins and then block maybe those origins or see greater than X amount of tries, you know? And I'm sure these guys have scripts that try one cred one hour, one cred another hour. Very hard to really do anything about these kinds of attacks on RDP. So turn it off. Put it behind something. VPN yeah. first, then put RDP behind that.
0: Speaking of turning things off, uh the Wi Fi at Hartsfield Jackson Atlanta International Airport was shut down as a precaution. So we'd have to assume that there's something going on with the Wi
1: Fi network there as well. Or I uh, don't know what I don't know and therefore turn it off because I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> could be another reason. <laughs>
0: You, you can't tell. Yeah.
1: So uh, show me those network on. diagrams that show me exactly what that Wi Fi has access to, please. PDFs are fine. <laughs> <laughs> they probably don't, oh, ex- probably don't exist. <laughs> uh, don't get me started on asset management. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to respond to that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Let's yeah. talk about the malware of the month. Drydex. So uh, we had we had a we had an interesting little email uh, barrage that uh, spread some Drydex. It was uh, pretty straightforward email that came in. Had a URL. User clicked the URL. Downloaded what seemed to me was a PDF. PDF really was an executable. The executable launched, and bam, the system was infected with Drydex. It's not. Uh, it's not rocket science, but this is how malware gets deployed. The cool thing about Drydex, which uh, is why we put this in here and, and we'll talk about it a little bit, is that it actually uses a signed good copy Microsoft binary. So it literally goes to System32. It has a list of binaries that it knows, that it, that it likes and knows about, that it can exploit. Pulls a copy of the said binary. In this case, in the show notes, we reference two of them that we detonated in the lab. And it makes a copy. So in this case, gamepanel.exe drops it into some random folder somewhere off of app data percent app data percent which is your app data local roaming directory some five character random name folder a b c d e and then bam drops uh, you know gamepanel.exe in there and along with it a bad Dll, correctly named for a dll that game panel needs so if you take gamepanel.exe and you string it out and you pipe define splat.dll you'll get a list of all the dlls that game panel needs and so in this case it was ux that's the bad dll they dropped in the same directory and then the run key points to gamepanel.exe pretty straightforward run key um, excuse me. Nope, not in this case. It was not a run key. This was a link file in the startup folder. Um, the cool thing about link files is they're not binaries. So if you're doing a hash look for binaries, link files will not show up in there. And being in the startup folder, pretty easy. You can put it in the all user startup. Every new user will get it. And then the second uh, persistence they have is a scheduled task pointing to a different version in Winder, which is Windows. Um, System32, and again, in five character random name FGHIJ, and boom, a different uh, payload, in this case, uh, camera settings UI host.exe, with its poor, uh, bad DLL sitting right next to it, which is needed by camera settings UI, which is DUI70.dll. And then, bam, boom, one of those two loads. Now, the other cool thing is, one, it uses service host to phone home. So you'll see service host as the communicator, not the actual name of the binary. And it pokes a hole in Explorer so that it can see it. Um, but the, the cool thing about using these things is that they're signed Microsoft binaries. So it's taking advantage of a kind of a behavior all of us have done in in IR or malware, where we tend to see a signed Microsoft binary and say, that's okay. And we hide it. Uh, Programs like uh, Process Explorer. You'll say, hey, here's all these processes. Here's 67 processes. I'm pretty sure the signed Microsoft ones are good so we can throw those out. And bam, suddenly your persistence or the Drydex uh, binary would disappear on you because it's a signed Microsoft, right? just says go load this in this odd location, which is the important part. Where this file is is the big clue. You know, a signed binary should be. Yep.
2: First, I thought that part of uh, signing a binary was hashing that binary as well, and uh, compromising the binary has changed the hash. This uh, is not a change. By- yeah, by- no, this is not
1: changed. They literally copy the, the, the good binary out of System32 and drop it here. They're using the real actual Microsoft binary, not altered in any way. Oh, okay. So okay. they're sideloading the DLL okay. be- yeah, because of the hierarchy rule, right? Gotcha. I got an EXE. I'm going to to look for the DLLs that I need in the same directory I'm at. That's why they move it to a different directory. And then I'll go down the path to so System32. Let me
0: interrupt 32. you just, just for listeners that, that haven't, read about sideloading it it has to do with why microsoft uh, windows is uh, so robust right it's a future
1: <laughs> robust uh, or broken you
0: and you can write a program and you can use these uh libraries that are dynamic to microsoft for example if i write something that uses crypto libraries i can use the internal microsoft crypto libraries if There, If Microsoft wants to change that library, make it more efficient in crypto, maybe add some more algorithms to it that are newer. Let's say SHA 3000 comes out. Well, they will add that to the crypto library. I don't have to recompile my uh, program because there's a dynamic library that I call. So my program is not only smaller, but it's also updated according to the operating system, it may run in Windows 7, it may run in, in Windows 10 by using those DLLs that Microsoft provide, and there's thousands of them, right? And there's a hierarchy. So if I want to, you should never do this, but if I wanted to write my own crypto.dll, I could stick it right next to my executable, and my program will call the one that I put right there alongside it. And that's what the attackers or drydex authors are taking advantage of here is that side loading. A signed Microsoft binary gets executed by a run key. It looks for the DLL it needs right there next to it. And so they put a DLL with the same name and the same functionality, although it has a little bit extra. Okay. So that's how the system gets infected. The bad, the bad code is in the DLL, not the executable.
1: Yep. And the the cool thing about the fact they're using DLLs uh, with signed Microsoft binaries is DLLs don't log in Windows in any way, form, or, or fashion. There's no nothing you can do to see a DLL load unless you talk about, we'll talk about it later, what you can do to actually see that. It is one important feature of uh, of a tool we'll talk about in advanced logging. And so you don't see that DLL load anywhere in any of the logs. You'll see the, you know, executables they're using. In this case, uh, they used a combination uh, of the ones we used in a lab, right? So we we had um, a combination of game panel exe, UX theme DLL, and then camera settings UI host.exe and DUI 70dll The cool thing is when you reboot the box, that Drydex morphs. The next time they're going to take a copy, of, they're going to take a copy of a different binary, put it in a different folder, and they're going to pad the DLL so the hash changes and suddenly the short, the startup shortcut has to change, the scheduled task has to change, and you're loading a completely different item. That means the dry decks that that petr gets is different than the Drydex i have and it's different than the Drydex that david will have which means if i'm going hash chasing and i get the hash in my box and i'm looking i'm going to go i'm going to go threat hunting or ioc or discoveries i call it ioc discovery or artifact discovery um and i go look for that hash i'm only going to find it on my box cuz you two have completely different versions of this thing and every time you reboot it changes which is even more awesome so it doesn't right, make right so i'm not going to have the same
0: dll that i have when i reboot
1: correct or awesome. the executable yeah pretty cool it's a it's a good tactic a lot of security tools again automatically or easily let you exclude signed microsoft binaries making this a uh, a thing you can easily miss now because of this behavior we had designed LogMD specifically to look for this condition it was definitely something we're like hey we gotta take this into account again it's you know it's the whack-a-mole so they do something we do something and, and you know Blue chases yep. red, and, and now red will chase blue as, as they have to tweak all these tools to catch the Drydex-type conditions, which uh, uh the con talks last year, we saw several talks on this very subject, how signed Microsoft binaries um, are getting you know, missed in tools because the bad guys have figured out that everybody turns that off because they don't want to see all that that what they consider to be normal noise. A lot of
0: noise, a lot yeah. of processing power. Yep.
1: Now, if saying Microsoft binary running out of an unusual location is something we can look for,
2: uh, I think you mentioned that it's usually running somewhere within user app data. Until a couple of years ago, anything running in app data was, or anything running under the user profile was suspicious. I'm seeing a lot more legitimate stuff running under the user's app data folder. Are you seeing that as well? Is this still a useful indicator?
1: Oh, it's definitely the number one indicator for certain. Um, Yeah, Windows applications and Windows 10 are under the user context. Uh, but yes, the, the location is definitely because you will, you'll be able to filter out Chrome, Firefox, you know, GoToMeeting, WebEx, whatever the typical things that get installed in user space. Uh, you'll be able to easily filter those out. And what you're looking for is everything else. And so it is still number one indicator. Uh, it, it works really well looking at the user space. You will have to do a little bit of, uh, of whitelisting of your trusted stuff to make those alerts, uh, worthwhile. But yeah, it definitely, definitely works. And Windows yeah. 10 with their apps have, have done that, but again, they're in a completely different location. So um, I wouldn't say exclude that entire location because that means the bad guys start putting their binaries in the Windows Store lo- directories, and and you might exclude them. So be careful there. Yeah, said different
2: technique means that trust is a uh, a, a relative thing.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, what's what's cool about this is they have three modes of persistent. You find the run key, you delete that, you think you're good? No. Yeah. Because there's a, a link in a startup folder. You delete that and you think you're good. No, there's a task, yep. right? So there were three associated with this one. And of course, there there could be more, but they chose to do these three.
1: Yeah, and a it's a lot of different
0: places you can have persistence.
1: We'll cover the details of, of scheduled task logging here in a little bit. I'm sure David will have something to say about this uh, as we went back and forth about this. It's important <laughs> to note that by default, again, Microsoft's awesome by default, awesomely bad is the task schedule log, which is where this stuff records being created and or launched and or terminated, is off by default. And Windows now pretty much predominantly uses uh, the task scheduler as the run location for all of its tasks. So the fact that that log is off by default is a a big fail in my book, and it's something everybody should turn on. And Drydex is is a great example of that.
0: And it's worse than that, right? With every creator update, it turns it off,
1: it turns it back off, maybe yeah. <laughs> yeah, even,
0: yeah, yeah. even if you're like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna get better, i'm gonna turn this log on. Your next update, Microsoft, in its infinite wisdom, will decide to turn it off for you.
1: Yep, there's a script on malware archaeology to enable that for you. I highly recommend you create a scheduled task to run this (laughs) every day um, so that when it does get turned off, it gets turned back on. Um, Or, of course, use GPO and and do it that way. But yes, that is uh, one of the many things that a couple VMs currently are being broken as we speak. Uh, Windows 10 is the most secure? Mm, I don't think so. It's actually worse than Windows 7 by a long stretch because of these undoing of settings that Microsoft does when they do their uh, upgrades.
0: All right, next topic. All right, a few sites that we want to bring to your attention. One is uh, malwarearchaeology.com and specifically the cheat sheets that that are posted on Malware Archaeology. And uh, we'll let the author of those <laughs> cheat sheets um, say a few words about it.
1: Who might you be talking about here? <laughs> yes, I authored these things. Uh, <laughs> the original, the very first cheat sheet, which we're talking about uh, tonight, and another one that was just released. The Windows Logging Cheat Sheet was specifically created uh, out of the unfortunate experience fighting the Chinese in the gaming industry and needing a... Consolidated short list of things to turn on, right? Here's, here's a bunch of stuff. Um, and again, this is long before. I mean, the cheat sheets are now, holy moly, five, six years old they've been around a while, the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, and it was designed to say, look, I want to turn these things on. If anybody's going to start anywhere, turn this stuff on so that you can catch the behavior that's going on in the box. In addition, because I used to promote hardening and I was involved with CIS uh, benchmarks when I was at HP, contributed in changing the HP OX ones as well as uh, participating in the Windows ones, that they don't go far enough. And so Uh, The the window login cheat sheet, the idea behind it was to exceed uh, in certain areas what CIS Benchmark uh, had, and uh, the benchmarks, uh, when I wrote the cheat sheets, didn't even reference a couple items that we tell you to turn on. They're now in there. They tell you not to turn them on on purpose, (laughs) uh, which is why the second uh, site worthy is the CIS.org CIS benchmarks, because a lot of people have tools, right? The SCAP type stuff that will say, I want to measure against a CIS benchmark. Great. That's the place to start. And uh, Brian and I have had experience where we ran LogMD on a CIS compliant organization and found, oh, crap. There's some serious things missing here, and the cheat sheet answers that. So what you want to do is layer security.org and say, oh, and I also want to enable these additional things, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But that's a, a typical compliance, CIS benchmarks or the USGCBs or the Aussie cyber standards, um, all, those, all those things kind of run together, and, and we'll talk about a tool that will check that for you. Those are important things. If you want to say, well, where do I start? Uh, cheat sheets are where you start. There are now six of them, so um, lots to consume. And we're going to talk about another one here in a second.
0: Yeah, the CIS have, has good info. That's your starting line, right? Not your finish line. So start there, get better.
1: It's your minimum, uh-huh. not your maximum.
0: <laughs> which unfortunately okay.
1: organizations take as the maximum.
0: Got a few sites from David. David, why don't you uh, talk about uh, attack.mitre.org? Sure. So both of the sites that I mentioned, uh, I see them as
2: two sites of the same coin. The attack.mitre.org site, it's a repository of adversary techniques. It's a great source of what would an attacker possibly do? How would I detect it? Could I detect it? Would it set off any alarm? A great site to look through and just see what potential badness might an attacker use. It's great for a thought exercise.
1: Yeah, we're seeing a lot of tools starting to map to this, right? Some of the uh, EDR tools are are trying to map in order to create a framework, if you will, that Potentially says, "Hey, you know, here's some techniques." Now, the thing that I think is missing from Attack. Mitre is is the attack framework. There is they do not mention things like event IDs when they're talking about Windows. Um, so there's there's certain lack of guidance. It gives you the procedural lateral movement kind of thing, which is your next item as well, which I think is a fantastic article by the way. But they they kind of tell you look for this behavior, but that's where it ends. They don't give you enough for the lower end analyst, medium analyst is going to struggle with what exactly. Am I looking for there? So I think there's a lot of opportunity for people in the blue team side, as well as we're seeing with the tools that are mapping their tool to test these conditions in the in the attack uh, miter stuff. And so I think we'll see a lot of movement here in the future in the next couple of years with all kinds of, uh, you know, hey, if you want to look at you know, item number twenty five you know, look for this event ID, look for this kind of condition, you know, like privilege escalation, you know, look for anything that's not LSAS, you know, asking for a, a, a credential, right, which is would be the equivalent for Mimicats or whatever it's named. Um, I it, I think we'll see more of those details come out. Um, so this is a great starting point, and they've sanitized all the details out. I understand why, but uh, I think we'll see people putting them back in to try to help yeah,
0: people. Right. In their attack matrix, they talk about Persistence, Privesque, evasion, credential access, discovery, lateral movement, execution, collection, exfiltration, command and control. They go through the gambit, and each one of these has it, – it's a huge matrix, and they have links to each one, like the input prompt, right? Uh, extra Windows memory injection, you know, MSHTA, things like that.
1: Good reference material here. Yep. Good place to start to build something.
0: Where
2: uh you know, goes through – attack techniques and explains the technique in detail, and it explains different adversary or uh, actors who have used the technique. The second site that I recommend, the jpsearchcc.github.io, is a a deeper dive into a smaller list of attack types, and that one, in fact, does go into what are all the different artifacts you could look for? What are the... The files you might look for, the the hashes, the the event IDs, the registry settings, all the different artifacts that could show up on a compromised box that show that particular technique was used.
1: Yep, and uh, we some were, of these
0: we talked about uh, yeah. command execution, PS Exec, scheduled tasks, WMI. Um, we talked about those earlier, and uh, that goes into detail with each one
1: here. Yep, So and holding off, and the one we were talking about, I held off the 4673, sensitive privilege use, right? scb priv If you see anything outside of a couple known good processes, LSAS being one, uh, you'll, you'll see a couple others, especially in Windows 10, uh, calling this particular SC-TCB-Priv. Once you filter out what's normal, then when somebody executes a Mimicat's call, and names it whatever the hell they name it, you will be able to detect that somebody's making a crib, uh, a credential dump. So um, this is where the, the Japanese have done just a phenomenal job. Uh, this is almost so good, I think the Aussies did it. But uh, this <laughs> is what the attack miter mapping should be like. This is a really, really good document.
0: And uh, David, uh, I just put this in there because uh, uh, I like your site. Tell us about Security for Real People. What is it about?
1: I'm out. <laughs> Doesn't got to qualify.:
2: <laughs> Well, uh, I, I was constantly getting questions from people about uh, security topics making their, their brains hurt, uh, and came to the conclusion that I've been doing this for a couple of decades. You've been doing this for a couple of decades. We're pretty knowledgeable about this. We're not so knowledgeable. Uh, say, dentistry. You don't want me pulling your teeth. So it, it was my attempt to take the, the thing that we talk about that we know really well and distill it down into a way that somebody who doesn't want to be a security expert, but they're still, say, a small business owner and they need to know how to keep themselves safe. So it, it, it's taking these concepts and presenting it to the people who are not lifelong security practitioners.
1: Yeah. I think this hits home on why Brian and I started this podcast. Um, there is a lack of prescriptive, and I know, David, you've been in a lot of cons as well as I have and Brian, and we leave some of these talks going, that's a great subject, are really entertaining, but I can't use that at work at all. And I, I think a lot of us InfoSec people that have some knowledge – or think we have some knowledge even if you think you do and you're not sure share it and i think is the big thing here because we need to train educate the next generation we need to find talent that we would hire to replace us and or you know our teams are getting bigger so augment us and and that's the idea is we need to explain this so we can get the noobs to the low end you know tier 1 tier 2 and hopefully help them get to tier 3 and and we can retire and feel that somebody's going to carry on our foo with any luck <laughs>
0: I just want to add something to that that came to mind. I mean, if you're a manager and you're approving someone to go to a conference, it doesn't have to necessarily be security, but something conference that your company is paying for, have the person come back and give a presentation on what they learned. Okay. I know that a lot of people go to these conferences and say, you, you ask them, Oh, um, well, uh, how was it? Oh, I was awesome. I learned so much. And then you say, okay, well, go apply it. And they're like, uh, what? (laughs) Go go apply. You said you learned a lot. Go do a lot. Well, I can't because it really doesn't doesn't have anything to do with uh, my job, right? So so that has two benefits. The first is spreading the knowledge that
2: they've gained at that conference. But the second benefit is in teaching,
0: you learn so much more than you do the first time around.
1: That's true. True.
0: Definitely, and it may uh, force them to make a decision. Well, do that? Do I go to that one talk, which is a cool exploit that'll probably never <laughs> be used because we patch, or maybe I should go to this one on how to build a, a great security team or whatever? You know, so that it might influence some choices on which talks they go to as well. Yep, I,
1: uh, I agree.
0: Uh, on to the next topic. <laughs> All right, so we've got. A few tools here. The first one is uh, uh, from www.log-md.com. Why did we put this in our uh, show notes here?
1: (laughs) Well, we are talking about Windows logging. And one of the things that LogMD is fantastic at is... Assessing or auditing your Windows audit log settings. Meaning, if you want to measure your system against what we just talked about, the Center for Internet Security Benchmarks, the USGCBs, the Aussie Cyber Standards, or the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, you can run Log Indeed just for that. Go download the free version, you run it, it'll give you a report every time you run it that tells you where you're set. So if you want to know where you are, and we've already told you where we'd like you to be, which is going to be the cheat sheets, uh, you know, or the CIS benchmarks or better, and the cheat sheets, then LogMD will help you measure that uh, and let you know where your system sits specifically. And that way, if you are domain attached and you have a GPO, you'll know what that system is and you can make the changes for all the machines. And if you have obviously other machines that are not GPO, as everybody tends to have servers that are not part of the domain, then you can manually check those as well. So it, it definitely helps you check the Windows audit log settings so you know where you're at, so you can put in change requests and and get this stuff turned up, so you can start collecting it. Obviously, the other thing it's really good at is collecting the log data that we consider to be security worthy, based on a lot of what's in the cheat sheets and other good practices. We definitely exceed what's in the cheat sheets, and it and it also has uh, malicious discovery stuff. But it is for Windows logging a phenomenal tool, and it will also help you improve your log management collection, meaning, you know, what am I collecting? Oh, this is really cool. Let's say you analyze some malware on a box, whether it's production or a lab, and this is a really cool artifact. I should probably go to my log management and look for this condition, like we were discussing, see users, whatever, right? Maybe I create a query that says, because Drydex goes to, C, for, to roaming some directory, we have uh, other malware that goes to Microsoft Windows some directory, that maybe I make a query and an alert that specifically says, look for new directories, off of this location and and create these triggers. So um, LogMD can help you collect the right things. Uh, also see what's noisy, so you can whitelist them out, so you can get rid of them out of your log management solution. So LogMD has a lot of purposes in regards to logging, it, and it does a lot more, which is why it is the tool pick for this podcast.
0: Yeah, and in the whitelist, it has wildcards. I don't know how many tools I've used, and and you just they they allow you to whitelist, but then they don't. Use proper regex. They don't allow you to use wildcards. You have to use the front of the string you're using and not the back of the string. Just all kinds of mess like that. And, uh, it is a funny story. It, it led us to discovering why or that Windows was taking us steps backwards in our logging whenever Windows was updated. We yeah. ran logon v and it said, "Hey, you're not compliant." What? Well, how can so I be that- compliant? We say
1: these scripts that set everything. Who turned it we off? Set it. Right, Man, and and turned out to be the Windows 10 upgrades. And it happens every upgrade, which is very annoying because that's you know a dozen machines that all of a sudden get <laughs> reverted back. We have to reset it. The script's available on Mauerarchaeology.com to set what we just talked about. So you can grab that and and quickly set your settings.
0: Okay, so forensics and IR, uh, David has a few suggestions here.
2: I do, and I'm cheating by listing a blog rather than an individual tool. He's Uh, a tool. You you could consider him a tool (laughs) (laughs) for
1: sure. That guy cranks out stuff. (laughs) He's a tool.
2: Yeah, he he cranks out tools like nobody's business. And uh, I apologize if I mispronounce his name. Didier or didier Stevens. But uh, the the tools that I use the most heavily from him are his PDF tools. Uh, If I get a a suspicious PDF attachment, I don't want to fire it up in Adobe Acrobat. I want to open it up in uh, the PDF parser that he's written and extract what are the different bits and pieces of it. Does it have some JavaScript to it? Does it have URLs to it? Uh, What does it have that uh, is unusual? that could uh, automatically run if it were opened up in the wrong application.
1: I call that a lab, man. Just open the PDF and detonate it, and let's, let's, let's log them log and see what it does.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what? Um, I, I like this. I, um, yes, I don't, I don't want to open a PDF in Adobe, right, in, on my box if I think it's safe. I tried to open one up one time with Foxit. A PDF reader, I thought, okay, Foxit doesn't run scripts, right? So if there's a script embedded in this, it's not going to run. I made the mistake, and it almost cost me all my files, right? Uh, of course, they were backed up, but still, it would have been a lot of hassle.
1: More more importantly, <laughs> more, I would have harassed your ass and laughed at your ass for weeks. <laughs> well, I, I opened
0: up a Word doc, and I wanted to export as a PDF so that I could send it to someone, right? So, Foxit it allows you to do that. You can you can do the conversion, right? You can import a a Word doc and then save it as a PDF. However, when you import that Word doc, it runs the scripts because it wants to update any dynamic data and shove it into the PDF. Are you
1: serious? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was pretty entertaining.
0: Yes. Yeah, it was it was amazing, and I was I
1: both of us my, were dumbfounded, going. My wow. heart skipped
0: a couple of beats <laughs> when 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 I was. <laughs> What happened, because, okay, so I set software restriction policies, which means that I sort of whitelist the applications that run in user space, and I have exceptions for that. Well, I do whitelist applications, and it comes with Windows Pro. Everybody should be setting this, by the way. And luckily, the software restriction policy stopped the script from loading an executable and executing it on my system. Happened to be ransomware. Yeah. Yeah little heart attack moment but that's okay. Uh so yes, be very careful when opening even uh uh, uh using trusted quote unquote PDF tools.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah, that was a good one. That was uh that, that was uh, a a moment. Hey, look at there. Yeah, be it careful with these when you go tools to print mode. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Save uh, app.
1: Yes, it There's. uh, I want to mention here since it's sort of a tool. uh, Next week, I will be in Houston at HusetCon doing a one-day course on. Preparing for investigating an endpoint. It'll be focused on Windows. We'll talk about the Nix and Apple stuff too. At HughSetCon one day. That's next Tuesday. If you're interested, go to HughesetCon's website. And then the week after I will be at B-Sides Oklahoma doing a two-day malware discovery class in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So if you're interested in some training, I am doing those the next two weeks. Yay. Oh wait, wait, wait. We have it. We have one for that. All
0: right. Now to the meat and potatoes. Topic of the day. Windows logging. Who, what, where, when, and why. So the subject of our podcast, Windows logging.
1: Let's do it. All right. Why is logging important? Well, uh, compliance, obviously, right? We We have government... Uh, regulations. We have HIPAA. We've got, uh, uh, you know, PCI. The list goes on of why you have to comply and do logging. Most of the frameworks, ISO 27000, we'll talk about that you must have log management, SIM, et cetera, yada, 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 right? So um, it's important because uh, you obviously, some some cases, must comply to some best practices. Uh, we're here to also tell you that the best practices of all the standards are inadequate in regards to catching the really good stuff, so that's why the Windows logging Cheat sheets exist. Um, but that is a, a big reason of why you want to do it. But also, it's because you want to know what's happening. Um, you know, these machines today are fast. A lot of them are SSDs. Even you have lots of memory. Uh, you know, OS drives at a minimum are 250 256 gigs. We're seeing them. You know in retail, go as high as a terabyte now. Uh, and so Room is not a problem. You can turn on logging in and have several uh, gigabytes of uh, of logs, and it's not going to hurt your space any. Windows is very efficient at logging. Uh, I think Brian has a stat on DNS logging, which is an incredibly noisy thing in a domain controller, and how little resources that takes up. Um, so you do want to record...
2: The important th- point here, though, is that the default Settings in Windows are going to keep those logs so small that you're going to turn them over too quickly to be useful.
1: Oh, yeah. That's that's one thing
2: that you see points out.
1: Yep. That is a grossly inadequate thing, which, by the way, the Windows 10 Creator Update will, uh, you know, nicely set those back for you in some cases and and throw log in decent fits. So thank you for that, Microsoft, for breaking the settings I purposely set. And quit telling me GPOs how you're supposed to set this stuff. Not everything is connected to GPO which is every home system or small, medium business, right? So come on, uh, quit doing that. Obviously, you want to record all the things that the system can do. It's built in. You don't have to add anything. It's free. Did I mention it's free? Uh, So turning this stuff on has a huge benefit to people like us, the IR. I'm sure if you were to ask your works right now, investigating the Atlanta situation, that they would love to have the level of logging that the Windows Logging Cheat Sheets give you because they would be able to know, you know, who, what, where, when uh, all this ransomware occurred and and have a lot of data and have things that they could then hunt for to see which systems uh, were touched and logged into, et cetera. Obviously, it's really good for research and hunting. If you have log management, uh, clearly, you know, a Splunk, a Humio, uh, Elk, whatever, you know, that's a phenomenal thing. Uh, speaking of Elk, um been playing with Winlog Beats for uh, my Humio stuff. And uh, speaking of wildcards, uh, the Winlog Beat uh, agent that a lot of people will use for Elk environments uh, for as the endpoint agent does not support wildcards. So if you want to blacklist things and use a wildcard or you have things like, uh, let's say, GoToMeeting or Chrome that use version information in the path, you can't use a wildcard to exclude that. So every time the thing revs, your blacklists are broken unless you go overly uh, broad on your exclusions, which is dangerous. So, um, yeah, they might want to fix that. Um, Whitelists,
0: right? You you trust Chrome, so you want to whitelist it and not... Uh, Collecting not have logs. it in your alerts or, or not log it, right?
1: Yep. And executes
0: so. all the dang time.
1: Yep, executes all the dang time. Collect the right things, try to get rid of the more noisy things. Uh, you're, you're really trying to focus at the things that will alert you to what's potentially bad, suspicious that you want to investigate. And if you're staring at a bunch of normal noise all the time, uh, which a lot of EDR tools, you know, hey, we have all this information, and you don't know how to hide trusted good information, or you don't give me an option to do so, which makes your tool really hard to use. Log management, that, that's sim tuning, right, is is I think you guys are having a podcast at BDS on this, or are you having a class or what's the sim tuning thing I, I keep hearing blurps about?
0: Well we have a we have a Slack channel dedicated to sim. So, I think there may be a class on on tuning uh coming up right,
1: so that's the idea in order to tune, you have to collect all the things at least on some sample of systems that then allow you to see what you can collect stats count by you know whatever process ID, which ones are noisy, you know, which of these 4688s are noisy. Ah, do I really want to collect Chrome? I've got a web proxy. That tells me all my browsing stuff, so Chrome's kind of moot in regards to, to seeing it in my process executions, right? And so it's important because you can collect in all this wonderful, wonderful data. Matter of fact, Brian and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, I did a talk at DerbyCon last year. Uh, definitely watched that video from Iron Geek. We evaluated like 16 EDR solutions, and my conclusion, still my top 10, Number one, log management. Number two, a tool like BigFix or Tanium or some sort of hunting tool that lets you ask the system a question. Number three, LogMD and four through 10 are still blank after using all the EDR tools because good logging is pretty much equivalent to these EDR tools in regards to hunting and seeing all the data. And if you look at some of them, that's actually all they are is cloud based log management with some threat capability and, and alerting and things of combinations, right? So good logging is, is, is why it's, it's it's hugely valuable and David points out help
2: you if you are, if you're beginning your log collection and tuning during an incident, because uh, how on earth are you going to tell the difference between this is noisy because it's normally noisy or this is noisy because there's something really bad going on?
1: Yeah. Well, that's where experience of our decades comes in, right? That's why you want to hire people like us or listen to these podcasts. Cause we'll help you with trying to determine that stuff. And I think, a lot of every environment's different i had a, had a client of mine that uses logmd um said hey you got an updated whitelist we could you know pilfer from you i'm like yeah you know i you're one of my clients and i i know what you guys have and it's far different than what i might have so you really have to uh, look at your environment the apps you use and and exclude that stuff that's unique for you because you might exclude something that i have and the bad guys might use that right so uh, you really want to build your own whitelisting and sim and, then, and then that's
0: not. That's an important point, David. I, I, uh, one thing that Michael and I do almost on a weekly basis is check out the, the things that are making the most noise and, and get rid of them, right? Not, not turn logging off, right? But just whitelist the things that are normal. You can go from hundreds of millions of log events down to a few hundred thousand per week just by trimming the things that are really noisy and things that you don't really need.
1: Yeah, like failed Active Directory oh, group, uh, group syncing that generates 50 million failed events. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that's the type of stuff you find if you're looking for, it, right? That's the whole point. Yeah. Now, the important part is, and I'm actually going to demonstrate this in class next week default Windows logging. Uh, so, I'm going to take a sample I used, Sandbox Evasion sample. Um, as a matter of fact, Sarah is one of the Slack users the other day. Um, and I'm going to detonate this on a default Windows 10, broken, creator updated, so-called the most secure operating system ever, and I'm going to detonate this malware, and I'm going to log MD it, and I'm going to take the results of that, and then I'm going to apply everything we're talking about tonight, and I'm going to show the class before and after. And I, I think seeing that's going to blow some people's minds, and I will probably even write a blog on this, because it is drastically different. Windows default logging is pretty much nothing. There are probably three things you get that are decent out of Windows default logging. It does, by default, log uh, service stops and installs, so 7040s and 7045s are, are pretty good. Um, And it does log logins, um, obviously valuable, local logins, uh, obviously. But, but there's very little in regards to the food that we really want to look for. And, you know, logging drastically improved or changed after XP. Uh, they call it, you know, in, in log terms, you see the term Vista used oddly to designate when this log changed. And if you look in your local security policy or GPO, you'll see this advanced audit policy. And that's the new stuff as opposed to what's under the security options, logging, audit policies, which is like five, six items. Um, that's the old XP stuff. Um, not a lot you can gain there, even if you fully turn it up. But the new advanced auditing is wonderful. Microsoft has done a phenomenal job in Windows 10 uh, and Windows 2016 on adding things, improving things significantly. Uh, yeah, Michael,
0: significantly. You, you mentioned um, that there were a lot of things improved that you can turn on, uh, Vista being, I guess, the first operating system that had all these new changes. Isn't this why carbon black and and companies like that did all these, um, really deep logging for their own sake came out because XP basically logged nothing. Uh, talk about by default, even the advanced logging or the, the logs that you could turn on, uh, did none of this. And, and, and that's why People had to invest in things like Carbon Black. They had to, whenever an event happened, ship it directly to forensics because this stuff wasn't logged.
1: Yeah, there there was so little you could tell from a system. And uh, it changed. The game really changed with Windows 8.1. It changed big time with uh, Windows 10 uh, when they introduced command line logging which was a uh, an improvement brought over from Sysmon, uh, command line logging is by far the number one thing you want to collect. Oh, but I might capture passwords. Good, because passwords should not be in your log. Uh, your your endpoint agent can uh, exclude those so it doesn't go to your log management, or you can pipe a text file to your script or whatever the hell is causing you to have the password in the log. There are ways to remediate or mitigate this this threat or scenario where you might be concerned about passwords and logs. But trust me, you rather have passwords in your logs. For the short time they're going to be there, you're probably talking seven days uh, on a local box uh, before it rolls with everything we tell you to turn on with a one gig uh, security log. Um, and we'll talk about a bigger log here in a little bit with David's uh, uh, recent assistance, uh, but command line logging is is going to tell you the details. It's going to tell you PowerShell executed, it's going to tell you PowerShell, IEX, or uh, web client download. It's going to give you all the details of what exactly the bad guy typed at the command line, even if it doesn't execute or there's an error. Uh, This item here is what we pretty much caught the Chinese in the gaming, the previous company I worked at. This, when we turned this on when it was new uh, with our Windows 10 guys, because Fortune our admins wanted Windows 10, and we had some brand spanking new 2012 servers for this new game, we caught all the command lines they did. It was awesome. It basically was EDR built into the logs, and uh, that was a huge improvement. Um, So thank you for that, Microsoft. 5156, David was a little surprised when I I put this on there, he read it, Um, uh, the Windows Firewall so they're valuable. Um, they're also very noisy, uh, right? David, 4688 4688's 5156. If you're a Chrome and Firefox and IE user, 5156 <laughs> by far are going to be your number one event generator. Uh, yeah, be...
2: 4688 is noisy. 4688 gets noisy with Chrome and some of its new features. If you enable process segregation, then every single page load and every single resource load gets its own
1: Process. Right. And now uh, you know why we would exclude the the browsers um, because it's what the browser downloads and executes that we want to catch. What the browser's doing is kind of not really all that important uh, unless you're really deep diving. But the Windows Firewall is important because a lot of people think, well, we don't use the Windows Firewall. We can't. We'd break too many things or whatever. You can use the Windows Firewall logging and not enforce the Windows Firewall, which is an awesome feature. Because that means when Betcher's machine, 10.1.2.3, is talking to my machine you know, 10.1.2.3.4.5.6, <laughs> you know, um, it it's great. His box is talking to my box, which is what the network information will tell you. The cool thing is the Windows uh, firewall logs, the 5156 will tell you that this binary in this location is talking to Michael's box. And so now no you way. can suddenly, yeah, now you can suddenly see the detail that allows you to know which binary is calling out to Russia or China or Ukraine or Brazil or or wherever. That's hugely powerful for us IR people, uh, especially uh in, in the fact that you do, do not have to enable it to block and do a bunch of management there. Um that that's really, really key thing to collect. And then now if you're not doing it and you haven't started investigating it, PowerShell logging. Oh, Lordy, please. I don't think we've seen a piece of malware not using PowerShell in over a year. Uh, they basically, in Word, will launch some script, which will use PowerShell to basically pull the payloads down, and and it just gets worse from there, meaning there are payloads that are all PowerShell. ransomware. Uh, Sam, Sam? Sam, Sam about right. So, uh, you need to investigate it. Uh, it's important to note that there are two kind of version areas of PowerShell. I wish it was a better differentiator, but version two, three, and four use old style logs. It's the Windows PowerShell log. Uh, version four and five, depending, and we can talk a little bit about that, uh, use the new PowerShell operational logs. And PowerShell v6 is now out. And oh, yeah, you gotta go update all your tools and your queries because it's no longer PowerShell.exe, it's pwsh.exe. Yay! Uh, across all platforms, so that's probably why they did it. <laughs> and that means the logs are different for versions, depending on what you use. What you look for will be different. And version PowerShell version V4, I have been unsuccessful to turn on the advanced logging of, of PowerShell V5 with V4 unless I upgrade to PowerShell V5 and then downgrade to v4 something remains in a box that then that logging works but if i take a 8.1 box and i fully patch it i cannot get that advanced logging turned on without doing an up to 5 back down to 4 and that's that's kind of a lousy way to get the logging to work um <laughs> i have yet to read an article that that tells you how to make that work out of the default and most of it us did. advanced user that have made it work it's because that's what we've done because we're going up and down in versions um so it's important to note that depending on what version our recommendation here is please get on powershell version 5 and enable the logging that's mentioned in the Windows, Power, Windows PowerShell logging cheat sheets because so much PowerShell is being used now, and a lot of it gets deciphered in the 4104 events, meaning what you see in the command line or other PowerShell logs will actually get translated um, at like base 64 blobs that you'll see um, trigger in a 4688 or, or whatever, a 500 event, and it will actually spell out what was in that. Uh, and you don't have to go through the whole Base64 uh, uh, unencoding. Un- un- um, so PowerShell is important. Those would be my top four, four areas of, of focus right now. And, of course, you need to make checks for, you know, how to how to make sure those things are enabled. So, you know, create some scripts, create some checks. Is this working? I should see this. Ah, there they are. Um, because there's nothing worse than thinking it's turned on and then you have all these queries and they're actually not doing anything. So uh, definitely make some checks to make sure those things are collecting. Uh,
0: David, uh, have you crossed that chasm them into enabling the uh, firewall logs, or is it still too much of a, I don't know, a horse hog for you?
2: I, I've done it in certain cases. I've not done it across the board, but uh, a lot of these logs that we've talked about, these events, are useful for investigating one system. They are phenomenally useful once you start collecting logs from multiple systems and can say not only did this binary make this connection to this destination, but that 87 destinations received the same connection from the same source.
1: Now I'm a whole lot more interested in that one source. Yep. That's exactly what it's good for. Now there's another thing I tell people. They're like, oh, I can't take that hit on my log license, right? My, my license will go crazy. You can, uh, which, which, Brian and I have right. We we turn this stuff on on a on a group of systems right. Know your assets. <laughs> Let's talk about assets in another podcast. But know your assets. Uh, turn this stuff on on a handful, and I talk about preparing for the big event. You can have the policies ready to go. And by the way, this is also a very important point in GPO. If you de- if you turn off the Windows firewall uh, at the root top level, so it affects everything down the tree you cannot arbitrarily go and turn it on below that point. So you're going to have to take it out of the root, which a lot of people by default back in the day did because of the fear of turning it on and accidentally blocking something, or they did turn it on and, and got burned because it blocked stuff. And so they put it at the very top saying, this will never be turned on anywhere. Uh, you'll have to undo that and, and then move it down the tree into the proper OUs and containers to affect the right resources. Um, but you can prepare for this, meaning... I may not turn this on to collect all the things right now, but in an event where David and I and Brian are investigating something and we see a target, something triggers us to look at it. Let's say the 4688 command line shows a bunch of weird uh, dry decks being loaded. And now suddenly I want to say, all right, who else is talking across the environment? I could flip a bit in GPO. Uh, you know, maybe bounce the boxes to cause, you know, everything to, uh, you know, the auto run of persistence to kick in again or, you know, randomly pick the machines we think might be suspects. And then when that persistence and that communication occurs, the 5156s will collect that and you'll then have that. And when you're done with your investigation, you could power it back down, saving that license space. That is an option to consider when we're talking about some of these more noisy events is you can kind of turn it on and off on the fly as an event occurs.
0: Now that's a that's a good tactic right there is set everything up to log. You don't necessarily have to log all the time, but when an event happens, you have the ability to just log all the right things, right, that that you need to yep. be able to define scope and all that stuff that you need. Yeah. That's good. We don't want to boil the ocean though by turning all these things on that at once, where, where do we start, right? Well,
1: know your assets, pick the the items that you think are most important that contain data that are highest risk, that are at local administrators, um, all your security people, people that are techie enough to know how logging works and the impacts. People that you can, you know, rely on to go investigate manually. Um, I, I kind of call these little localized honeypots, right? If you look at what the Chinese did, to us in Gaming, when they finally got in and they hit a hundred machines. If you, let's say, turned on logging on ten percent of your machines, and you you give it some thought, and you you put it on some domain controllers, you definitely want it on your domain controllers. Your Exchange servers, you definitely want it on there. Um, and again, servers are a lot less noisy. Um, then workstations by far because users are opening and closing things all the time where servers tend to open stuff and that's about all it does. Um, and you spread this out throughout your environment. So it's in every domain, every segment. Then if something hits you and crawls around and really, you know, nails you, one of these honeypots that are highly logged will, will potentially give you, uh, uh, incredible value of data. And then you can flip the bit to turn on more. If need be. So uh, you have to know your environment. You have to know you know what you want to protect, where there's heavy data that you don't want stolen. Things that are potentially facing anything facing the Internet must be turned on and turned up. You want to catch all that stuff because if an IS server gets a command shell, you want to catch that once it drops out of the out of the web server into the OS. And and so you have to give some thought about your environment. But definitely spread it around uh, your environment. Get it to people that you can definitely go to and investigate, practice, play with, um, verify. Because you need to start collecting some of it so that you can create all the queries and all the alerts and, and get your scripts and or log M D things all ready to go. So you're very quick when it does happen. To, you can react and stuff is already kind of set up for you.
0: All right. Time out. You mentioned, um, okay, you Anything facing the outside. Now, you may not want to turn up 5156s on your Apache server, right? But you could, you could do the 4688s, right? Or your IIS server because, you know, um, these web servers, they don't really create new processes for every connection. They create new threads. Correct. So that's different. 4688 is a new process creation. Correct. So that won't be as noisy.
1: If you've got good firewall logs and your servers are proxied for web traffic, then yeah, you could probably turn that down and turn it up only in the event that something triggered it. I I would definitely agree with that. This is a great, you know, win-win scenario, right? If your firewall logs are seeing all the internet traffic going to, so you know that Russia's talking to that you know Apache server, IS server. You've got that that source IP that you need that you're looking for. You know it's talking to IIS and and then uh, it triggers something in a 4688 or some other Mimicats, whatever 4673. Uh, you know myriad of of triggers. You could then say I'm going to turn the Windows Firewall on for a while so I can see what process is starting to talk. Um, that's a, that's a great approach because 5156 is incredibly noisy when it comes to something that's talking to a lot of things.
0: All right. So um, okay. Industry standards, right?
1: Yep. I would say pick one, and I think you have some homework to do here, and that is take your industry standards, like if you're a CIS shop or a USGCB shop or if you're overseas and you're Aussie and you're following the Aussie cyber standard or any of the others, take a look at what it does, Uh, run LogMD, get the difference between what you're set to, look at the cheat sheets, look at the things you're additionally wanting to turn on and, and start looking at improvements. Now it's cheat sheets plural, right? Because we have a PowerShell cheat sheet, we have a Windows cheat sheet and we're we're going to announce a, a new one that's already out, but we're going to announce it on this and, and David can talk about that. That the cheat sheets uh, will help you, uh, you know, you have possibly use of Sysmon as well. And so what you want to do is build on that industry standard, understand the gap, and get those conversations going because then you, of course, as David's found, once you get the basics going you're going to go hey you know i can catch this if i turn this on oh wait that's a lot of events i I gotta tune that but you really do have to not get complacent here and once you get the stuff going uh, look at improving it and turning more things on you know getting now, hang the, on getting when, you, when you
0: say tune what does that mean where where are you not logging those things that you really don't need i mean are you turning it from from uh, different logging levels is that what you mean
1: yeah. So uh, a couple examples. One, um, I wrote a blog article about this a while back, uh, you know, working with our, our local, uh, our local guy here, Marcus Carey with uh, Threat Care. You know, we were playing, one of his tests that he does with Threat Care is uh, looking for port scans. And so I had, I think I had one of our guys port scan my box. And I'm like, huh. Not seeing anything. Well, one, it didn't cross the firewall, which would trigger our alerts, uh, because now we're in segment. And if you're in segment, how do you detect an Nmap scan? Because if it doesn't cross one of those firewall boundaries, your IDSs, IPSs, and firewalls aren't going to see it. Firewall log failed connection attempt will catch Nmap scans or or port scanning. And so that's an example where. Uh, You turn this fail on and suddenly you get all this noise. You're like, ah, okay, I'm going to turn that off and I I realize I'm not going to see this kind of traffic. And so that's an example of tuning. David will have one for you here in a second, I'm sure, um, in regards to some 4662s and others. And and that's an example, right? Right. But you can turn it on to collect locally. You just may not send it to your sim. And so your your agent, like Winlogbeats Beats or NXLog or your Splunk Universal Forwarder or whatever forwarder that, the, that stuff you use or Windows Event Forwarding, you can tune and say, I don't want to collect this. I do want to collect this. And literally, all you have to do to change it is change the setting in the endpoint and then start and stop the service and boom, it'll start collecting. Or you'll find something is incredibly loud because you turned on failures. You're like, those failures may tell IT something and they don't really care so it's definitely not telling security something so i'm going to turn those off and that's what i mean by tuning uh, also within the log you're not you're not uh, stop collecting them into your log management you d- may just filter them out within log management but if you get a very large number of events you may consider tuning them out of the endpoints so they just don't send do not send a 4688 with a message of anything splunk in this directory structure because it's all the splunk stuff starting and stopping and that's just going to fill up my logs because all my servers and workstations have it for example right i don't need to see nx log or or win log beat in my logs because that's just the agent and so you can filter out by a specific vanity a specific message and that's what i mean by tune
2: a lot of that comes from trial and error uh, if i've got a particular capacity that i'm paying for in my, my sim and i turn on 5156 collection, and suddenly I'm pushing close to or exceeding that threshold, then maybe I do need to dial it back at the SIM, but can leave it active at the endpoint. Now, why would you so leave them it by the same token if I Well, because maybe I become suspicious of an endpoint and I go investigate that endpoint. I have at least got seven days' worth of this event at the endpoint, even though it's not being collected uh, centrally.
1: And you got LogMD you can use, right? So if you're not sending it to the sim, LogMD potentially is going to collect it for you. So you could execute a job, push it out with your your tools, whatever you may have. Run LogMD, collect the data back, uh, the RCSVs, which you then could suck into your sim if you if you're investigating ten machines. Um, and so there there's a huge value that is there for you to go investigate later. And also, right. when you turn it on, it will collect that length of time unless you. Specifically tell the, the agent not to collect that log for more than 72 hours, which I don't recommend. Figure out how long your logs are generally keeping and then make sure your, your collection is that. And then when you turn it on, it'll go back three, four, five, six days.
0: That's important if you're, you're, you turn everything on, but they're only your log is like three gigs large, but that's only 10 minutes worth of data that's that's not a good situation to be in either, so yeah. so you have to keep looking for these things and tuning as you go and know what your your potentially is valuable, and that's where the cheat sheets come in as well
1: yeah, that's an important point. And the more familiar you be the more familiar you
2: become with your environment with what's normally in your iron and can tune the things that are normal the the less you're gonna have of that three gigs of useless noise,
1: correct. You can either turn it off altogether or leave it collecting locally, but that's an important point. You should look at what is collecting locally in your logs. A domain controller, a one gig security log in a domain controller is far different than a one gig workstation log. You will not get seven days of logs in a domain controller with as many logins as it has to handle with everybody authenticating. So you really need to understand how much length is you know, going to be one gig on that type of device. A domain controller is very unique because of the fact it's authenticating everything and everybody. Workstations, servers, people, logins, apps. It is not going to collect seven days of the one gig security log. You will have to up that if you want that data locally and you're not sending all of it to a sim. So you really have to understand what is being collected in that And those recommended sizes and up them uh, to collect some period of time to give you a chance. Well, all right, this attack started Friday night. I get in Monday. By the time I get to that system Monday afternoon, that's like I need four days. And you find that your one gig log maybe collects two days. You're gonna have to exceed you're gonna have to increase that log to cover that period of time. That is an important point on things like domain controllers or, or things that are incredibly noisy that you've turned up uh because you, you want the data.
0: Okay. I'm gonna take us on a tangent here just for a few minutes. This seems like it's gonna take a lot of time, right? Going through these things, looking at what's valuable, what's not, tuning. I mean, what's the value add here ultimately?
1: Well, I think if you start with, let's say, our workstations and our laptops and our desktops as security people, and you get those going into your, into your SIM, your log management solution, whatever you're using, and you get all that tuned, you're probably 80% there for the rest of the organization. As you start turning up more and more things, they're all going to have what you have. They're all going to have Office. They're all going to have the OS. They're all going to have all the things you've excluded. And then you'll start seeing the exceptions, right? And it's not that hard when you're looking at one, three, five, ten systems. Like, just start with 10. I'm going to take 10 systems that are fairly varied and I'm going to throw those into my log management. Probably not going to blow up my uh, my log license unless you're really close to the to the top and you're trying to justify it. Because I'm sure David gets this question as much as I do. How much is one system going to add to my log management? How do you calculate that? Well, you got to tune it first because you could go from, you know, a gig a day down to 100 a hundred mega day if you tune it right. So it depends, right? If you got... Web proxies, you don't need to collect Chrome and Firefox. That's a lot of data. And, and you won't see it 46.8, 51, You can tune that out. The, the advantage is if you start small, you'll be able to scale much quicker. There'll be a lot less information. If you try to go on and turn on a thousand systems and say, I'm going to start tuning, oh, that's not the way to do it. Definitely start small, get that tuned down, get those alerts working, test it, execute a PowerShell script, execute this, break something you get in malware so it doesn't affect your box, but execute it in the box so it gets in a log to make sure your alerts are triggering and say, okay, this is working pretty well. And plus, you're building your case to say, "Here, management, this is what I want to do. You know, here's roughly what it's doing now that I got these ten systems. This is roughly the impact of the licensing. If we have an event, I'll need you to spend a hundred thousand dollars because either we pay for it or we're going to spend half a million with a with an IR firm." And and so that's that's kind of what you do, uh, and that's how you start, and that's that's how sim tuning probably should occur is is in small amounts.
0: And, and it's not just the license. Like if you have elk, it's it's also capacity. Yeah, storage.
1: Too. Yeah. And, you know, how many servers are you running? You may overwhelm the fact that you need to, you have two servers and suddenly you throw, a, you know, a thousand workstations at it and suddenly you need four servers. So, yeah, yeah there home. is capacity planning involved here for sure. David, what's your take on this? I know you, uh, you're going through this, this exercise like we have. Yeah, I've
2: got a slightly different perspective on that. Uh, I agree absolutely that it's an iterative process. Uh, where uh, my perspective though is you can spend a million dollars on blinky boxes and you're still going to have to take the time to tune those blinky boxes to, to teach those blinky boxes how to get uh, real badness from noise.
1: I thought this that's what all this AI was all about. Uh, Isn't that what into, you know? AI and artificial intelligence, it's supposed to be like <laughs> auto-tuning, right? what what what, what you're you telling me this stuff doesn't doesn't Where, automatically work
2: <laughs> nothing is, is is ever as easy as pushing an easy button there's just <laughs> no such thing but uh, this is taking advantage of stuff that's built right into the operating system you had it already you paid for it when you bought a license to windows
1: that is a very cool that's thing. True. it's free you don't
0: need a, a fancy um, agent right that that writes its own logs and, and uh has all the process execution and the DLL loads and all that stuff.
1: And sends it. them to the cloud, right? And if you send you got, to, you got to accept that you're sending your logs to the cloud could a lot of organizations uh, might not like that with these blinky boxes.
0: And it kind of reminds me of the uh, the target breach, right? Wasn't the big thing that that their their excuse was we had millions of events. We just didn't see what was right in front of our face. We yep. recorded it. It was just clouded.
1: Yep. They had not gotten to the level of ding, ding, tuning. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, they have not gotten to the level of tuning. Yeah, that is definitely true. And we saw that with the EDR evaluation as well. We turned turn some of this stuff on. We're like, whoa, <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> Holy whoa, right? There's all, hey, this policy, this policy changes. T- oh, don't turn that on. Oh man, it's going to create more stuff, right? And we went through those conversations with the vendors. So yes, David is absolutely right there.
0: And okay, back on the centralized ver- uh, logging, forwarded versus local logging. We talked about why some things shouldn't be forwarded right and we talked about the value of actually logging them and and having them available locally right your forensics team is going to love you for that because it makes their job a lot easier not going to take a week trying to extract things out of memory it's all logged right logged a timeline it's all in the logs and and it's all you know time lined up already it points Um,
1: them in the right direction it speeds up their initial uh, investigation right they don't have to start from scratch knowing nothing they they have a clue and the clue leads into other clues and so that's the important and, piece of logging for forensics exactly and and it and it makes their job a lot faster too hey there's a lot
0: of nice to haves locally that you can turn on and it's not going to kill the box i've got a link in the show notes to an article from microsoft that says that i don't even know what the quote is what you, you can log 50,000 events per second on a domain controller and it's going to uh, be unnoticeable. And then 100,000 events per second, it'll increase the CPU maybe 2%, 10%, something like that. So whenever you you hear the excuse, oh, it's going to kill the box, okay, make sure they present you with the data proving their point. Don't just blindly accept it's going to kill the box. They have to present you with data.
1: Yeah, we we got that argument. We said turn it on and provide us the the data, and they said, "Oh, I guess it's okay." And so our settings were left in place, and now we got good logging. You 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 will have to uh, fight and or convince and or uh, because again, a lot of IT organizations have never done this in the past. It wasn't very good before XP. So some of the even the more experienced IT people have never done what we're talking about. And so there's a lot of FUD that you will have to potentially demonstrate and or do presentations and or prove, which is why 10 systems, like I said, you know, pick your pick your uh, your targets uh, very, very uh, strategically.
0: All right. Now going and collecting these logs when you need them, uh, instead of going through event viewer to uh, try and figure out what happened. Let's talk about some of those.
1: Well, let's talk about some gaps in industry standards, real quick. CIS benchmarks, USGCBs, there's a couple of things that are really obvious. Uh, we, we touched base on them. But let's point out to make sure that, that industry standards do have or are inadequate. Windows by default, very inadequate. Windows 10 upgrades will undo some things. Task header log not being enabled is a perfect example. Not collecting command line. Not turning on PowerShell logs, which is what all the standards currently say to do, which is a big mistake, are things, are examples in Windows firewall logs for obvious reasons of the noise. They do not recommend you turn these on. They are they are specifically tell you to disable these. Uh, You need to understand that there is this gap and you need to document that gap because you might have to fight that battle for that gap. I know we did. You do have to make a case for the inadequacy or the additional things that we're talking about here, um, whether it's a real malware evaluation, uh, meaning you actually taken some malware and detonated it and can show people like I talk about, where you'll see the uh, before and after cases, it might be something worthwhile. Know that there is a gap here and that you uh, are missing some things and that you definitely want to address those and and point this out. Log configuration properties, log sizes. I know David's about to cover some of the improvements uh, in the Windows Advanced Logging Cheat Sheets, but uh, we basically have a simple rule. Uh, PowerShell logs and security logs, one gig, will get you roughly seven days on a workstation. Typical server, not a domain controller. You're really going to rely on log management for domain controllers. You'll have to have several gigs of log sizes to collect some longevity there. Um, Domain controllers are definitely a unique duck in regards to the 4624s and all, all the logging that goes on with logins. Look at the sizes. We recommend no more than 256,000, right? A quarter gig for any of the other logs. Uh, an exception to that would be Sysmon. It's an additional add-on service. That should be a gig, if not two. Uh, David's going to have a recommendation for increasing the security log, I believe, with the Windows Advanced Login Cheat Sheet. They are definitely grossly inadequate and Microsoft will unset these in the Windows 10 upgrades. Do not just take what the CIS benchmarks. This is another area of gross, and this is to me negligent, the sizes that the industry standards call out at 32K and 64K. It's negligent. Uh, That means they do not understand how much data is being collected uh, today on these systems. And if you actually turn them on to what the benchmarks say and then look at your logs, you will find they will rotate in minutes. That is worthless. That is a very important thing to understand. The log sizes are huge. And you are going to FIFO them. You know you won't stop them or you won't let them grow. Uh, Typical FIFO log scenarios, Microsoft's kind of finally figured that out and you just kind of accept that. But you will need to change the log sizes for the ones that you are collecting. If you're collecting it, turn it up to fifty-six thousand one gig for security or more. Uh, Sysmon one gig, PowerShell one gig. PowerShell makes these huge text logs. So if PowerShell goes crazy in your environment and your logs not big, you, you definitely want that history. Uh, PowerShell's being heavily you used. You make arguments
2: that it's not necessary to have the storage if you're collecting locally. The fallacy in that is if you're turning over your log in minutes, that may not your collection may not keep up with that. If you're turning it over in, in days and you have mobile clients, those mobile clients may not check in um, in an hour or a day.
1: Uh, yeah, true. If you got a lot of laptops floating around the internet and the only way you collect is when they're back in the in the shop and they're inside the, the walls, um, that is something you will have to address. Uh, there is the ability of putting internet gateways out there that are encrypted and whatnot so the logs can be sent. Uh, there's potential using cloud solutions um, so yeah, that that is definitely something uh, you want to take into account, right? Um, logging agents can send to the log server when it can see it. You know, how does that work when it's in when it's queuing up locally, and then finally the person VPNs in and wham, right? All this data gets sent up. Uh, you will have to definitely test that condition. It, it is it is something that most organizations don't do, which means those logs are not being collected when the laptops in a hotel traveling or whatnot.
0: Funny thing about logging agents, uh, I had one set. It was set for UDP. So when it got a log event or whatever that it needed to send, it would fire a UDP uh, packet to the log collector. Here's the problem. When I turned on 5156, I, the log collector sent a packet to, uh, or the agent sent a packet. 5156 logged it. The collector said, or uh, the collector said, or the agent said, Hey, I got a new log event. And it sent it. 5156, <laughs> logged it. Agent said, hey, I got a new log event. Sent it. Um,
1: you, you now know why you have to tune. <laughs> Do exactly, not send your... You have to be looking at
0: these things <laughs> yeah. because all of a sudden my log filled up. I looked at it and it was a bunch of 5156s UDP for the log collector, right? So then I was like, okay, there's got to be a solution. I cha- there's a setting that I could change the uh, agent to uh, make a TCP connection. Problem solved. So you have to be looking at these things. You have to be monitoring your log sizes.
1: Yep. So that's, you know, that's, that's, I think our take on that. Um, centralized forwarded versus local logging. I think we, uh, we covered this pretty well. There is, uh, I've tried this a couple of times, just not a fan Um, I know uh, Jessica talks about this stuff a lot with the Windows event forwarding where you can take and use WinRM and and have all your Windows boxes send to a a collector. That collector then is just one big massive uh, event viewer. Um, Maybe good for small shops. I do know some large people that are using it, but they have, definitely told me that they know some things that are not being collected, meaning there's there's drop-offs. There, there are some definite uh, caveats with that. You know, if you're not collecting centrally, you do or should increase enough logs to know when your cutoff is for reacting, right? If it takes me at least three days to react or the Friday through Monday example, I've got to collect enough logs locally so that I can investigate. And then your process better take into account, yeah, better conclude your investigation by that sixth or seventh day so the stuff doesn't start rolling on you and you lose all the data that you're actually looking for. Um, that That's obviously good. And it won't kill the box. I mean, been doing this for a long time, back, you know, even when I was HP, you can turn all these things up to 1, 2 gigs on multiple logs. Windows can keep up with it, no problem. Uh, you will not kill the box in any way, form, or manner.
2: Another danger in uh, not collecting centrally is the malware or actors may try to clean up after themselves and wipe the logs. Sure, you'll get an 11.02 event yep. saying that the logs were cleared, but... Now they're
1: lost. But that's a dead giveaway, and now you go into forensic mode, right? So even that is an indicator of how I'm going to react if I see that. A good actor, a pen tester won't do that because even idiots will turn that on. A lot of default solutions, uh, alien vaults in the world, will catch those 1102s, those clear logs. And so that's, that's really a dumb thing to do from a, from a hacker perspective. Uh, the Chinese did that to us. One guy made lots of typos, cleared the logs every so often. Another guy never made typos, never cleared the logs, and it's clear because they're using built-in utilities trying to look like a normal admin that clearing the log is the dead giveaway, right? Why are these all – because when you go investigate the ones that have been cleared, not knowing or maybe they didn't know, again, the greenhorn, clearing the logs, and they knew we're using Splunk, then you just gave us a dead giveaway, right? So that's a really bad idea. Um, there's a new module for Mimicats that uh, will stop the log collection. Again, you'll generate so much noise before you get to the point of stopping that log collection that in theory, if you're doing log management, you would see that activity and then suddenly your data disappears. There's no more data, right? So even that will tell you something and how to approach it. And you may be picking up the phone and calling your forensic guy and say, hey, I got one for you. Log's been turned off, got no log data, didn't collect it in log management. So forensics, you go.
0: Yeah. And just by turning this stuff off, that limits what the good hackers can do, right? Because they, they already can tell uh, what, once they pop a box, you're, you may not find that. Maybe it's a vulnerability, something like that, or they had creds. Yeah. Once they get on, the good ones are going to figure out, okay, what are you logging? And if you're logging all the right things, they're going to be very limited in what they can do and not get caught.
1: Yeah, uh old colleague of mine at HP, Carlos Perez, dark operator, we know him well, um, lots of people know him out there, has a Metasplate module he wrote that specifically checks all the logging we tell you to turn on as part of his, his pen testing, so he looks to see... Where in the chain of malware archaeology have you enabled the logs so he knows what kind of noise he can or cannot make? And so the bad guys know what the good guys do and, and will adjust accordingly for certain. What can you do to collect logs? David, what do you what do you use to collect logs?
2: I've used Winlogbeat, Beats. I've used uh, WEV Util. But those two are the ones that I've most heavily used. I'm starting to look at what LogMD can do. Uh, to be honest, I don't have enough expertise with it to, to say much on that end.
1: Uh, you will. You will, and you'll love it. <laughs> you wait.
2: <laughs> but in, a, in an elk world, uh, the the log beat wind log beat collector that is part of part of elk it it does the job.
1: I will be posting a sample WinLogBeat file. This is something I find in general with endpoint collectors. Uh, There is currently an NXLogConf file on MyWareArcheology.com. There will be a WinLogBeat.yaml file on MyWareArcheology. There is very little data documentation that tell you how to filter the endpoint correctly, meaning in WinLogBeat, there is, because it's a YAML file, you think XML is funny and you do your little indents and everything, which is really more uh, visual than it is needed. YAML files have a very specific format Spacing is important. Tabs are bad. I needed to come up with a way to be able to say, look, I'm going I'm to filter out process names, command lines, source IPs, destination IPs, application names, the combination of an application name and an IP, right? The, the kinds of filtering we want to do in the endpoint so we don't flood our log management solution with all the noise. And uh, I came up with a pretty good uh, WinLogBeat YAML file that I will be posting on, on Mauer Archaeology to give people a sample. And, it, and it's set up in such a way to make Make it easy to edit and add for the critical areas that are highly noisy, like the Windows firewall logs and uh, 4688s command line filtering because you definitely want to do it by command line as much as possible. And, uh, I found that to be painful, uh, three different iterations of doing exclusions and, and finally came up with this one as a, as a made a lot less mistakes in this format than any of the other three ways of doing it. And it kind of covers the gambit, I think of what most people want. Um, and so that'll be posted here in the next probably few weeks that will, should help people use an elk and everything else to not collect so much noise. Cause that is yeah. a huge piece.
0: Cheap. The, uh, the the cheat sheets have a lot on them, and there's a Splunk Logging Cheat Sheets. There, there's uh, also a Sysmon, and, and these are updated all the time. I think, Michael, we had an update to the Splunk Logging Cheat Sheet uh, just last week. We did. right? Very good resources, always updated whenever something new is found right? by, by either of us. Now, um, you also have, do you have a Sysmon Logging Cheat Sheet?
1: Uh, it's in it the works. That got seriously postponed because it went from like four to five to six to seven in a very wow, short all the
0: period. Just yeah, just...
1: and it didn't work in four and five and six. Might I add? <laughs> Uh, there were so many bugs I was sending to, to Sysmon and Mark. It's like, what the hell? You now are required to use a config file. I do not like that. Version four, you did not require the use of a config file, which means I could just run the Sysmon agent. If you if you borked my config file, I still had some basic logging. Yeah, that's no longer the case. Here, which means Sysmon can be messed with, which is unfortunate. There will be a cheat sheet on that as well. There, we have definitely learned significant amounts with version seven and the additional uh, registry auditing that's happened, where we specifically had a code. Log- MD to not collect certain things unless you specifically opt in to collect them because of the sheer volume involved. So there will be a Sysmon cheat sheet coming out when we get some time. And that is an important tool, right? It's an additional service that you install. It's free from Microsoft. A lot of people use it. There's some well-known Sysmon configs out there that you can use that have tons of filtering. But again, I add some garbage to the bottom, restart the Sysmon service, I break the config. The smallest error in the config file will unfortunately render the config uh, unusable and then your sysmon will no longer collect so i recommend collecting everything you can local windows and then uh, use sysmon to add things like an id7 which is module loading which allows you to see dll loads it also you have a id6 i believe it's a driver loads things you don't get in windows uh, sysmon has some serious power for uh, which means also include that in your configs and then don't necessarily collect it, but in an event, it's already in your configs. You can turn it on, install the service, and and you'll start collecting the Sysmon stuff. A very valuable uh, way of of using Sysmon. Uh, it is on on Brian and I's boxes all the time because uh, you know we basically want to make sure. Again, as a works.
0: testament to it won't kill the box. That's right. I don't even notice it. We've got Sysmon turned up quite a bit. And I don't I don't even know it's on.
1: Yeah, we did have to exclude it in AV. Be careful there. It is a service, so the AV checks it every time it's checking the thing. So there's some playing going on there that you have to be worried about. It's good. It collects a lot of data that uh, window logging does not collect. Uh, and that's what I use it for is, is that additional advanced logging. Uh, there's also a, an agent, complete replacement. This is an endpoint, meaning this is what you'd use instead of a Splunk Universal Forwarder, instead of uh, NXLog, instead of WinLog Beats, is uh, WLS or the Windows Logging Service. It's a government project out of the Kansas City plant. There's going to be a link in the show notes on where to go get it. It's also on Mauer Archaeology's website. And you have to pay for it. It is a purchasable, uh, so, but think of it as... Sysmon on steroids. Jason McCord has done a phenomenal job. We have provided uh, input for that as well, giving him some tips and clues of things that should be uh, logged. And uh, it is an agent that is incredibly, incredibly powerful for those people who really want to, A, collect a whole lot more stuff because you, when we talk about noise, this thing will collect uh, an incredible amount of, of data. In regards to uh, the system, it is not using the Windows logs; it's its own logging agent, its own trace log agent. It's a it's a phenomenal endpoint for high security needs like nuclear power plants, which is why it was written. Um, <laughs> the next topic is old David's advanced logging. So take it away. Tell us tell us what you've been working on. Both of us have been working on.
2: <laughs> it really was both of us, and this project started out as uh, you, Michael, and I just chatting on the Breaking Down Security Slack channels, uh, just more obscure event IDs and strange oddities that we came across and thinking of, okay, so we've got this standard Windows Logging Cheat Sheet that uh, helps us enable the most, the most useful and most broad-ranging types of settings. But so what are some more, uh, some more obscure and some more interesting use cases? What could we catch? if we enabled some of the the noisier logs, and what are some novel use cases for the things that we're already collecting. For instance, with Windows in its default state, it's going to uh, generate an event ID 140 for uh, task registration updated, or an event ID 106 for a task registered whenever a, uh, a scheduled task is created but it has no information in that event as to what that new task is. Now, if we enable other object access events, then not only do we have those two uh, non-informative event IDs, we now have a 4698 for a new scheduled task or a 4702 for a modified scheduled task that will include the complete XML of that task which includes the the user that created it, the complete command line, and the scheduling details. But a, a caveat to that is other objects cover a whole lot of ground. If you've got BitLocker enabled, for instance, you're going to generate uh, thousands, if not millions, of 4662 events for the, the volume encryption service. Enable it, and then you have to find out what, in your environment, is going to create noise that you can't work with and you need to tune out so that you can then see the things that actually are interesting. Uh, another example, this one using something that's already collected in a new way, is the 4688 event that we talked about earlier in the show uh, for every new process launch. With Windows 10 and with Server 2016, this event ID now also includes the process name for the parents which is a great way to catch processes that should never spawn new processes. For instance, a 4688 event where the creator process name is WinWord or AcroRead is a bright red flag.
1: Yep, or PowerShell or (laughs) WScript. The list goes on. Yeah, yeah. Then another one that I had added. Uh, I have to give a lot of credit to one of my clients that that had me out there trying to solve this problem. I had I had actually experienced this painfully at uh, the gaming company um, in regards to services in Windows. Uh, Windows does a phenomenal job of logging what Microsoft thinks is important, and unless you actually write your code to take advantage of these logging APIs, um, a starting and stopping. And even uh, the installation will occur. You'll see that as a 7045 because it's adding a service to the system, and that's automatic. But any alterations, stopping and starting of already existing services that a bad guy might take advantage of or an employee's trying to turn something off is not logged if it's not a built-in Microsoft-supported uh, item because the vendor may not have done it. Uh, for example, several endpoint agents, if you were to stop them as a user There's no log entry for it. So one of the things you want to do to capture that information is to uh, basically configure, you have to actually change the DACL of the service that you are trying to monitor so that it does do an object access uh, when you enable it and obviously collect the things, the 4662s and whatnot that it will generate. And you want to turn on uh, handle manipulation and other object access events to enable only. You don't need the the failures. You only need the successes enabled. And you change, there's there's information in the advanced logging cheat sheet under configure for this, where you have to dump the information about the service, you have to query the service, get the actual service proper name. You have to do an SD show, uh, uh, SCSD show to get the data about it, pipe that out to a text file. You then do an SD set to get the big DACL string. And then you have to add this specific DACL that's in the logging cheat sheet to the existing DACL that's there and then save that, basically changing the DACL service. Now when it starts and stops, it will trigger an event that you can, you can monitor for. Uh, when Microsoft normally doesn't do it, which is a very handy thing. Uh, and you're going to look for a 4656 for these these items. And that's that's kind of a weakness, right? So uh, we had the Chinese attack uh, configuration management tool. They actually exploited it. So when they stopped and started it to reload their stuff, we never saw it because Microsoft did not log that uh, item and, and the vendor did not write their code to log. Um, and so we never saw the starts and stops. If we had, it would have been, wait a minute, what, what's that service stopping for and starting for? That That's really weird. And look at all these commands like that executed. That's an important point that people have to realize that not all services will log starts and stops. Only the ones that Microsoft specifically wants or the vendor specifically crafted and used the proper APIs for. Um, And so there's an option to then do that in the uh, cheat sheet. And that's that's one of my additions, as well as the one about end mapping and failed uh, 5156s as well, something that I added.
0: So this advanced logging cheat sheet, that's available?
1: It is available. We published it, uh, what, a couple weeks ago this month? Uh, before B-Sides, we, we did yeah, it specifically. About three
0: weeks ago. Yeah.
2: Towards the beginning of this month, right?
1: Yeah, we wanted to get it out for B-Sides Austin so we could mention it. Uh, since Brian and I did a talk there uh, about cred stealing. we wanted to at least mention it and uh, get David on the show um, to talk about it. Uh, this is a big improvement because, again, this is, you know, how can I do more? And so now we have a place to start recording these with the advanced logging cheat sheet that I would say, this is probably not what everybody should be doing from the start, But once you get really good at this and you want to start doing the stuff that David talked about, stuff I talked about... Uh, stuff my client talked about, which really deserves a lot of credit here. I would love to mention him. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't. But he'll listen, I'm sure, and he'll thank me for at least telling him, giving him the, the kudos for it. Uh, this is a place for us now to start recording some of these more obscure things, right? We constantly monitor uh, manifestation stuff. I added a couple more to the, the Windows Logging cheat Sheet Sheet because literally the logs are already there. Uh, you just had to turn one on, the other one's already there to look for some uh, certificate-related uh, trust model failures that he discovered and he mentioned these logs should be collected uh, they're not very noisy so i consider that a basic item and i threw in the basic one but as we discover these cool tweaks these cool things um that are definitely advanced topics this is where they'll go uh if you've got some ideas please send them to david and myself and and we'll give them some testing and and see if they're uh they're worthy explain to us why you collect them what the use case is and we can throw those in there and uh throw your twitter or, or blog in there as well to give you credit unless you want to be anonymous, which some people have done in sending us stuff in the past.
2: An important distinction. This is not intended to be a starting place. This is intended to be uh, now I've got the basics taken care of. Now let's go after some of the, the more interesting, the, the edge cases. Yes. This is edge cases.
1: These are edge cases, higher higher use cases. This is really interesting. I wonder if this other stuff executed. Oh, crap. I'm not collecting it. That's what this is for, right? Um, Right. If I had turned these on, uh, cool, I'd get these. Uh, We talk about the Windows DNS stuff as well. It's very noisy. But there's some cool artifacts to be had if you really want to delve into it.
0: Now, uh, yeah, I think it's important to first, number one, know your environment, right? And then download the cheat sheets, uh, turn the things on, on select systems, right? You mentioned 10 systems, turn these things on. The next step would be to tune, tune what you see to, um, customize these logs to your environment and uh, expand, rinse and repeat, right? That's pretty much the, uh, how you should approach. Uh, getting into these advanced logging or even basic logging, right? Start with the cheat sheets and expand from there. Go on to the advanced.
1: Let's also add... Know your environment. Yeah, know your environment. And seeing this in the logs is how you'll know your environment. And once you see 10 systems all generating the same thing and you know there's nothing going on, you go like, yeah, that's pretty normal... I'm going to filter that out, right? And everything you filter out, you can filter back in. I mean, it's, you know, again, you're doing it at the agent endpoint with any luck or within the SIM. So turning things on and off is, is pretty easy to do. But it's also important to note here that in log management, you have the, the concept of a report, right, or a dashboard where I'm going to show something or I'm going to run something to see something. And then there's the alert. Don't make the mistake. A lot of people do this and say, oh, this is a cool report. This is... And they turn all these reports into alerts. Really consider what you're looking at. Is this informational, right? An alert should be something, hey, wait a minute, I need to read this. And if there's something funky in here, I'm going to take action. That's an alert. And as you see alerts that are non-actionable, you're like, ah, i got to filter that out. Then you tweak your alert to get to the point where it almost disappears. And again, every alert should have a test so that you know that thing's working and somebody didn't break something, make a typo or whatever, or an email address change to your alert, whatever the combination may be. Be careful and, and consider no more than two dozen per person per day alerts for your staff, however big your staff is. That's about as much as most people will handle that are truly actionable. There are some alerts you'll get that are very quick to scan that you, you do want. You do have to scan through them. And, and so maybe those will be another dozen. They're, they're literally you can look at them and say, yep, nope. Um, because you can visually see something's there. And again, it's not so much what the data says, it's how the data is structured. will kind of give you an idea. Uh, example of that is, uh, is an email coming in. If you have a, an email alert that says, I've got uh, 12 senders sending the same subject. That doesn't happen too often. Right, so occasionally it'll go off for something external coming in and you'll look at it and go, oh yeah, okay, not it, moving on. Uh, But alerts should be actionable. You are going to potentially take action when you see this thing or you should read it. 12, 15, 18, 24, uh, somewhere in that range per analyst, and then uh, maybe a couple ones that are quick scans. And the rest, once those alerts trigger, you then launch the reports and build your workflow in that order. Um, also, you don't want a million alerts going off because you're using, consuming those resources in your log management. So be be understanding of the fact that, uh, and spread these out between zero hour and, and hour 55 so that they're not all going off at the top of the hour and, and suddenly get the spike with your log management server. Your IT guys are saying, why are you doing this to me? Um, and, and so that's, that's something that you do need to consider. I've done it. That's why. <laughs> they, have, they have come down. What are you doing? Um, or create a really bad, uh, query and it runs for like four hours and they're like, you killed the server. Uh, how did the hell I do that? And so Brian and I set out to solve that one. I'll give you
2: another, I'll give you another thought exercise from one of the advanced logging cheat sheet, uh, use cases. Uh, if you enable DNS client event logging on your Windows clients, one of the events that'll show up, Is an event ID 1001, which represents the name server that your client is configured to use. Now, does a name server that is not one of your expected sanctioned corporate DNS servers represent a client that's misconfigured? Does it represent an appliance that does not, that has a hard coded name server you can't change? Or does it represent a DNS changer malware? that is trying to intercept a man in the middle of your DNS request. I don't know that without uh, looking into how how frequent those events are in my environment.
1: Correct. Yeah. Great example. Great example. DNS, it's definitely a a good one. I like this.
0: um, It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So know your environment and then, of course, tuning your logs helps you learn your environment which helps you tune your logs right yep. so uh yeah it's it's like a cyclical thing and and of course no uh blue team talk would be complete without uh going over uh some of the attacks and how to to mitigate these attacks right clearing the logs how how do you detect clearing the logs and what do you do about it
1: yeah 1102 <laughs> You got uh, log clearing in the security log, log clearing in the application log or system log that will collect all those, right? So you definitely want to have that monitored. It's pretty rare. Um, you got an admin that's doing that. You want to ask them why. So please don't do that. Uh, you know,
2: Just a side note, the event in system log is going to be a 104. Yep. It's 1102 in the security log.
1: Yeah. Correct. And, and so uh, watching for that is obviously a number one. That's a, That's kind of a no-brainer thing to set up an alert for.
0: Oh, that's an alert, yeah,
1: yeah, and you might want to do a stats count by uh system, meaning how many places did this log get cleared? So, if I suddenly have a security log that's being cleared on one, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, fifty. Uh, workstations, something bad's going on, right? So the number of uh, log clears might be very telling uh, as opposed to just being one, which could just be a, a targeted, right? Obviously stopping the log service, that is uh, that is something that's difficult. It's not easy. It's been recently discussed. Uh, Maybe cats has a module for it now. But in order to launch all that, Uh, you will generate a whole bunch of 4688-type traffic and potentially 5156 connections back to wherever your tools. You definitely monitor for that uh, condition uh, based on the process executions, and then suddenly your data stops. Uh, That should be a pretty good giveaway. I I wouldn't necessarily test this anywhere but a a lab. Uh, You don't want to do this in production because you may be re-imaging if you can't get it back based on the way they they do that. And of course, you can uh definitely look for the lack of data. Uh, this is something in, which is kind of a little difficult, <laughs> right? Um because usually you trigger based on some quantity, but uh with a bit with a bit of foo, you potentially could say uh this thing should always generate 1000 events. If it doesn't generate over 100 events, something's wrong. And and theoretically you should be able to build a query that looks for that kind of condition. Uh, Brian and I have this condition for many of our devices that sometimes are finicky that all of a sudden disappear. And so we've turned these on to specifically look for the condition of when these logs suddenly break, like there's a collector script that's working to collect these logs. And suddenly the fact that it's zero is a bad thing and we have to investigate that because a script broke or a connection to an API broke or whatever. And so that's kind of important, right? If you change the log sizes that create an event, don't believe so, not out of all the settings we do. Though, you know, there probably is a setting, but I don't believe the change in property of event log occurs. But you could you could definitely monitor the registry. For that, a lot of log solutions let you collect the registry, like Splunk, and you could you could point to those keys that have the size of the log, and if it changes, uh, trigger on that as well, or use a configuration management tool or a hunting tool to look for that condition.
0: Ah, so if a black hat changes the log size to one k, so it'll roll every, you know, millisecond. Yep. Or ten seconds or whatever. Instead of clearing the logs, which is obvious, they could just make it something really low. Yep.
1: Or they'll fill it. Like uh, one of the things we tell people not to do is turn on the PowerShell um, uh, script for uh, 4105s and 416s because every execution of everything creates this entry because uh, you've executed a, a script and not the whole block but the, the individual calls. If I were an attacker, Carlos Perez, I'm sure has probably executed this. Uh, matter of fact, I'm I am have to ask him this, but I'm pretty sure he's done it. I would generate a whole bunch of forty-one. If this was turned on or as a bad guy... And I found it wasn't turned on. I would turn them on and I would generate a whole bunch of 4105s and forty-one sixes. some script that just rolled the PowerShell logs even if they were a gig because they generate so many useless events that I could, I could literally just flush the logs probably in five minutes and nobody would be the wiser, right?
0: Right. So it's important to not only forward events to a centralized collector. That way, if the logs are cleared, you still have them theoretically. Yep. It's important to also monitor that you're getting logs right because it's it's easy to for for someone to make a change and that change breaks something either in the firewall or the uh,
1: endpoint yep application okay. servers as we recently found yeah i mean you, you do need to also monitor the keys that we tell you to change to turn these on so monitor the policy keys for turning on command line monitor monitor the policy keys for powershell logging because again the bad guys potentially would turn that off or they'll change them, reduce the log sizes, as we're pointing out here. Any of these kinds of attacks are, are are good. They would probably fall completely under most people's radar. Built into the Splunk Universal Forwarder, for example, is the ability to monitor registry keys. Several other solutions are out there: Taniums and Big Fixes, and and you know you could run all kinds of things. Um, I'm thinking probably a LogMD can, as uh, for example. So you could theoretically uh, use LogMD for this as well. But yeah, you want to monitor the keys that hold the settings of all the things you're enabling to make sure anybody messes with those settings to try to just not collect or turn things off that you would uh, uh, catch them with any luck.
0: All right, David, any final words before we kill this one? No, this has been a very fun and informative talk.
2: Appreciate you having me on. Well, awesome. I, Again? I
1: appreciate the fact that you uh, took up the challenge and and uh, kicked off. I sent you the template for the uh, logging cheat sheet and, and – we got this advanced logging cheat sheet out. I think it's a, a wonderful resource, great place to, to capture this stuff. I know some I look forward are, to uh, your audience shipping in their own ideas. Yeah, well, please. By I all can. means, people, send us send us information. You uh, definitely can find uh, myself, Hacker Hurricane, uh, the blog, as well as, obviously, you can find Brian and I both at IMF Security, so Michael and or Brian at, at imfsecurity.com. And, obviously, Twitter us, DMS, Hacker Hurricane is my handle. You you can yes. do your handle, actually, because, you know you got to you got <laughs> It's it. It. it's
0: kind of long I mean at dot was taken so it's uh, at betropone b o e t t c h e r p w n e d and you can reach david at at d n l o n g e n or go to securityforrealpeople.com check him out there yeah. um um we did mention that uh these guys got together on the breaking down security slack channel you can uh request access to that channel go to bds.podcast at gmail.com that email address just request uh, access to the slack channel we'll find out that you're not a bot and uh give you access.
1: yeah we do have a bdr bdir channel and endpoint channel uh, sim channel malware channel that uh, pretty much i hang out at so you can ask questions um, we also have a LogMD channel. If you're a LogMD professional user, uh, to ask questions and get support there. Uh, but there's we have,
0: also a job board.
1: Yep, job You need a job. one job
0: for people seeking jobs. Yep, uh,
1: lots of good stuff. So we're we're definitely expanding the family of BDS with uh, that whole infrastructure. It's, it's really good.
0: Yeah, there's over a thousand people on the Slack channel. So whatever your interest, right? There's there's probably somebody else that's just as interested.
1: C- can we say? whatever your infosec interest is and try to keep it on the topic of information security or learning information security versus, you know, I don't know, politics.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Touche. All right. That's a wrap. We're going (laughs) to bag and tag this one and uh, we'll see you on the next episode of breaking down incident response.
1: Thanks, David. You bet. Thanks, Sean boy. And we are out. All right.
3: been thinking